You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. For 13 weeks, we will be studying the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We started it two weeks ago. It's one chapter a week, so we're keeping it kind of simple that way. Let me give you a little bit of the backstory. So when the book of Nehemiah opens, Nehemiah gets word, he gets a report that his home country of Israel, the capital city, Jerusalem, is in shambles. Now, this really wasn't news. It had happened 141 years before this. But it finally gave Nehemiah a chance to see it as God saw it. And he wanted to do something about it. He is living 850 miles away in, in the Persian Empire, in the, in the capital city there of Susa. And he asks the king, Artaxerxes, to be able to travel to make this happen, this rebuilding effort. We will do something a little different this morning. I'm going to read uh, the entirety of it, then we'll come back and get a few points. And I think you'll see why I want to go ahead and just get this passage. Um, here's Nehemiah chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachor, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hazak, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berakai, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And the way to do these Hebrew names, do it fast and with confidence. You don't know that I'm not saying them right. <laughs> and next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. They refused to work, in other words. The Shoshana gate was repaired by Jehoiada, son of Pesaja, and Meshulam, son of Besadiah. They laid its beams and put its doors and their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of, of Gibeon, and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates, Uziel, son of Hariah, son of the golds, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Hamarmoth, made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of Hashbaniah, made repairs next to him. Malchijah, son of Harim, and Hasub, son of Mahath Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. This should have been one of those, you know, we do this in unison. <laughs> Shalom, son of Hashanhesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Now, that's a key phrase. We'll see that again. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan in the residence of Zenoa. They built it. They rebuilt it and put its doors and their bolts and bars in place. 
They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Halkijah, son of Rechab. He had the short straw on this one. The dung gate. Okay, never mind. Ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors in their bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kolhazeth, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the half district of Beth Zur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool in the house of the heroes. Next to him, repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half district of Kali, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Benuoi, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half district of Kali. Next to him, Ezra, son of Joshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zebai, zealously repaired another section from the angle of the, to the entrance of the house of Elishab, the high priest. Next to him, Meribah, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the entrance of Elishab's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house. Next to them, Azariah, son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Benuah, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Palau, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pedadiah, son of Parash, and the temple servants living on the hill of Aphel made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate toward the east in the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Aphel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Emir, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanum, the sixth son, not the first five, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. We're almost there. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechai, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malkajai, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. Last verse, in between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. How many of you right now are like, Man, we just read five minutes of names, and I am bored to death. <laughs> like, you just took a brief nap. I get it. And you're like, what in the world? Why did we just dig in to the Hebrew phone book? <laughs> like, who cares? It's just a list of names. In many Bible commentaries, they just skip over it. And you're like, Paul, why didn't you do that? <laughs> like, there's nothing here. Just move along. 
But here's what we believe. Everything in the Bible is there for a reason. It says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for us to be equipped for every good work. That means that God has some good, significant, important things for you and for me to be about. And everything in the Bible is to equip us and prepare us on this walk into our destiny for the things that God has called us. And in this list from Nehemiah 3, there were 38 named people, a whole bunch of unnamed people, and then a host of teams, if you will. And the reason that it doesn't matter so much to us is because we don't know these people. But imagine if you were in the Bible. What if your name was in the Bible? I mean, mine is. Some guy named after me wrote half the New Testament. <laughs> so imagine if your name were in the Bible. Imagine if the team that you worked with, if the division in your company, the volunteers that served alongside of you in one of our ministries made it into the Bible, you would, you would want to take that out and post it and share it with everybody. Hey, I made it into the Bible. And then the big idea is this, God cares about people and God knows what you're doing and God knows where you're working and God sees how you're serving and God cares. Even if other people don't care, God cares. Even if other people don't know, God knows. Wherever you go, there may not be a, many people who know you by name. But wherever you go, there is a God who knows you and loves you and calls you by name. So what we're going to talk about is why God would include these names in this great chapter of the Bible. Here's the first point. Any good work that you do to glorify God is sacred. Here is mainly a bunch of people who are regular folks who work regular jobs and they put in regular days. The story again is this, the walls surrounding God's city of Jerusalem have been destroyed. The gates have been burned. The city is basically uninhabitable. In addition, God's people have been scattered and, and frustrated and discouraged and, and the temple was no longer serving people. The doors of the temple were closed so God's people were not gathering for worship. We know Jesus is supposed to come to Jerusalem, be crucified, die, be buried in and around Jerusalem. He is supposed to send out from Jerusalem the gospel to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Everything is hinging on God's people rebuilding the walls and the city and opening this temple back up. And what we see here are people doing the quote, unquote, good works that God prepared in advance for them to do. The good works include digging holes, building a fence, shoveling dirt, hanging a wall, a gate. We may think none of that is very spiritual, but it is. 
And you need to know that your work is sacred. If you do anything to the glory of God, that is sacred, it is spiritual, it is special. Here's how I know that. Genesis 1 says that in the beginning, God created the world. The word in the original language really means God worked. Our God works. That means it's godly to work. I think we need to tell the rest of America that. That word needs to get out. In addition, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God made our first father Abraham, I mean Adam, and it says that he put him in a garden to work it, to take care of it. So if you're a guy, you're an unretired guy, go to work. And this is what we also see in the New Testament, Colossians. The Apostle Paul writes to them, Colossians 3, and I want to I share this with you regarding work for the Christian. Whatever you do, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And this isn't just about a paying job. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you do incredible work. If you're retired and you volunteer, in your volunteering, you are serving the Lord. So our God works. He made us to work. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, ultimately we work not for our boss, but for our boss's boss. You see, over our boss is someone called the Lord Jesus. Even if you don't like your boss, serve the Lord who is over your boss. What the Apostle Paul is saying is whatever you do, if you're a Christian, Your work is now meaningful and valuable and purposeful because it's not just connected to your job, it's connected to the Lord. And ultimately, God is going to use whatever you do at your job, wherever you volunteer, God can use that to build his kingdom. So the big idea of what makes life meaningful and valuable and purposeful is not just what we're doing, but who we're doing it for. And we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are following the example of our Lord. You know, a lot of time we we reflect on Jesus' ministry, but we may think, well, okay, how do we follow his example? I mean, he casts out demons. He walked on water. He healed people. He did a lot of incredible things. He did do some great miraculous things. But 90% of Jesus' life was swinging a hammer. For the first 30 years of his life, Jesus was a carpenter. And he did three years of public ministry. So God comes to earth. And the first 90% of his life, he works like you and I work And he's doing regular, menial, manual labor to serve and to love. So the people in Nehemiah 3, they are working. They are volunteering and they're giving. And so they're giving and serving to expand and extend the kingdom of God. And the big idea is this. It's not so much about what you do. It's about who you're doing it for. Look, the world 
needs good Bible teachers. We need to get the word out. The world also needs good mechanics. I mean, how many of you want a spirit-filled mechanic? We need good roofers and good plumbers and good accountants. Lord knows we need a few good politicians. So if you love the Lord, whatever you're doing on behalf of the love of God, it is significant. It is valuable. That's why these people are getting mentioned in the Bible. And we see that they, they have started and they're making progress. That being said, what we're seeing here are some very ordinary days in Nehemiah 3. Now, let me ask, in your life, is your day-to-day mostly extraordinary or ordinary? Mostly ordinary, right? Like, what'd you do today? Well, I got up late. I stepped on the scale. I wept bitterly. I got dressed. I fought traffic. I sat in my cubicle. I came home to do laundry and wept bitterly some more and went to bed. That's called Tuesday. Most days are not extraordinary. And and see, we live, we live for social media. And just so you know, social, social media is where all the liars go. You know, like everything's just amazing. No, it's not. We know that you set it all up, that you feel bloated and your cat threw up. Nehemiah 3, ordinary day, everyone's going to work. You set the stones, you dig the hole, you shovel the dirt, you hang the gate. And what we're going to see a little later in this book are some very extraordinary days. There is a revival that's going to break out. But here's the big idea. The Bible records the ordinary and the extraordinary because God is in both. And oftentimes we think, gosh, if God would just show up, he does all the time. He's sitting right next to you wherever you are. God is in the ordinary and the extraordinary. And what most of us tend to see is we want to be like the extraordinary. Man, we we want everything to be so significant and so sacred. But you see what happens in the ordinary days? We are preparing for the extraordinary days. They're preparing for a city to be opened and a temple, and they are preparing for a revival. A lot of the work in the ordinary is preparing for the extraordinary So what can happen is that we get discouraged sometimes when we're reading and what happens in the Bible is that we see, uh, you know, these ordinary days and we just skip over them and we're like, oh, there's some names listed in Nehemiah 3, skip, skip, skip. But remember, they're going to work just like you and I go to work. And oftentimes what happens when we read the Bible, it's the extraordinary days that stand out most to us. Like maybe you're saying, you know, I was reading the book of Acts, which is the history book of the New Testament church. And man, I wish we were in the days of Acts. There was nothing that seemed like but miracles and healings and and the supernatural and God's spirit just pouring out on everybody. True, all true. But let me summarize the book of Acts for you. There are healing miracles, 14 of them. In the book of Acts, 
12 of the 28 chapters have a healing miracle. But the book of Acts covers about 30 years. So sometimes when you turn a page, you're turning several years. What that means is even in the book of Acts, for every extraordinary day, there are about 700 ordinary days. And God is in all of them. So let's look at several lessons for leaders and for people serving together for God in ministry from Nehemiah chapter 3. Number one, this is for leaders. There are three principles. First, everything rises and falls with leadership. I mean, how many of us would acknowledge right now politically, economically, culturally, we have a few problems. And what we need is leadership. Everything rises and falls with leadership. The walls, the city of Jerusalem, the temple have been in ruin, in ruins or unusable for 141 years. Zero leaders have stepped forward to get the job done. Nehemiah shows up, a little bit of a spoiler alert if you read the rest of the book, which we will. He gets the job done with God's help. Everything rises and falls with leaders. Number two, a diverse team is the best team. In the New Testament, the language is of a body as a metaphor for the church. And what it says is the body needs lots of different parts, and we don't need all the parts to be the same. How many of you are glad you don't have 17 left legs and no arms? And so the way it works is the diversity in the body works together, and the church body is like a physical body. Different people bring different gifts, and they do things differently. Together, we don't compete. We complete. And so that's what we see here. When we read Nehemiah 3, some of them were priests. These are religious professionals. Some of them were craftsmen. They were people who were trained and worked well in woodworking or masonry, stone, gold. There are officials. Some are leaders. There are women. I made mention of that. And oftentimes women were not involved in projects and mentioned. They are mentioned here. And God honors them. There are several servants and security guards and business leaders. So a diverse team has come together. And this is one of the most beautiful things about the church of Jesus Christ, the most diverse movement in the history of the world. A few billion people on earth today say they love and serve Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so in the church, we have people young and old, rich and poor, white, brown, black, all those who are healthy, sick, those who uh, struggle to get by, those who have accomplished a lot. And what we see in Nehemiah 3 is that everyone is involved. Very rarely would you see all people working together for anything except for the cause of God. And then number three, a culture of honor is godly. A culture of dishonor is ungodly. Like right now, true or false, our culture right now is a culture of dishonor. You want to be trending online? You know how you do that? You attack people, you go dark, you get negative. If you want to bless and love and encourage and serve people, you probably are going to get hammered by those who want to be negative. But here it's like, hey, we have this new book of the Bible. 
what is it? It's Nehemiah, and you're in it. I didn't know I was going to make the Bible. I mean, that's amazing. Again, would you feel honored to have your name in the Bible? Absolutely. And so what Nehemiah is doing as a leader is he is cultivating this culture of honor. You see, culture is, is what you teach, and it's also what you are willing to tolerate. He is teaching and modeling honor, and then he can't tolerate dishonor. There were two enemies, two critics we mentioned last week. They are going to be present throughout this entire book of, of Nehemiah. They were there at the beginning. They'll be in the middle. They'll be there at the end. Sanballat and Tobiah. They are enemies of God. They are enemies of God's people. They keep trying to come against this culture of honor with a culture of dishonor. They are discouraging God's people. They are debating God's people. They are deriding God's people. It's all negative all the time. It's a culture of dishonor. And so what Sanballat and Tobiah really represent is the culture of hell. That's dishonor. And Nehemiah is honoring, is, is, sorry, is modeling the culture of heaven. That's honor. You see, culture comes from one of two places. We learned this in James when we did James not too long ago. In James chapter 3. It talks about either what we bring up into our lives comes up from hell or we bring it down from heaven. We either bring God's kingdom of light down into our lives or we bring Satan's kingdom of darkness up into our lives. What Sanballat and Tobiah were doing was evil, demonic, dishonoring. What Nehemiah is modeling is honor, and he's honoring those who are serving and giving. The whole point is this. Nehemiah is leading a unified team of hardworking, humble, devoted folks. You see, God does supernatural things through natural people. God does his perfect work through imperfect people. That's the big idea. So here are the lessons then for those that were the leaders. Be a good godly leader, recognize others' gifts, and bring in a culture of honor. And then from Nehemiah 3, what about for those who aren't leaders? What about the rest of God's people? Three principles here. Number one, and by far the most important, the most significant, is that God works for you, God works in you, and God works through you. So God works for you. God comes to earth as Jesus Christ. He lives without sin, and he dies on the cross in your place for your sin. He does all of the work of salvation. And then he says this, it is finished. All the work is done. And he dies and he rises, and he conquers Satan and sin and death and hell, and he forgives sin, and he returns to heaven. And right now, Jesus is reigning and ruling and forgiving sin. And Jesus will change your life. And Jesus will alter your eternity. That's our Lord. And then he works in you. He sends the Holy Spirit to give you a new nature, new desires, new mind, new passion, new power. And all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I, 
I want to open the Bible. I want to learn. I, I want to sing. I want to serve Jesus. I want to leave my old life. I want to walk in newness of life. Things change for you. So God works for you. God works in you. And then he works through you. You're like, okay, God, where are you working in the world? How can I be a part? Who can I serve? Where can I give? What can I do? How can I contribute and make a difference to your kingdom and your kingdom's cause? That's what these people are doing. They're believers. God has worked for them and they trust him. God has worked in them and now they want to volunteer and serve And God is working through them. And what they are doing then is putting this into practice. A second lesson for the rest of us is that we should be serving together. But we already showed in that passage, there are some people who are are unwilling to work. It said in verse 5 that their nobles would not stoop to work. They didn't want to put any weight on their shoulders is the way it was worded. And these were some of the leaders. These were the people with money and power and prestige. And what they said is, we don't want to get our hands dirty. That's beneath us. And ultimately, they missed out on the blessing because the blessing comes in the serving. In addition, they didn't understand the heart of God. Jesus comes to earth, and I mentioned already, the first 90% of his life, he is going to work swinging a hammer. He is glorifying the Father in heaven every day, including the days when he just went to work and got his hands dirty. And if you had met Jesus then, you would have seen calluses on his hands from the hammer. You would have seen somebody pretty physically fit because he walked everywhere. There were days that he sweated profusely because he worked hard. And then there was even an incredible day where Jesus goes to wash his own disciples' feet. He got down on their knees, on his knees, the lowest job of all. And he cleans the feet of all of his disciples, even Judas Iscariot who Satan took over and ultimately betrayed Jesus. Well, if God is willing to wash Judas' feet, we can't say as Jesus' people, I'm above that. Because I'll tell you, he still serves me. If we have a God who is willing to serve, I need to be willing to serve like my God. Those nobles didn't get it. They thought that certain things were beneath them. In addition, did you notice that some were working near their homes? In multiple verses in Nehemiah 3, they were assigned sections of the wall to rebuild, and certain people worked opposite or next to their home. So some people are serving at the church, if you will, the temple, Some were rebuilding the walls and some people were working from home. We thought working from home remotely was a COVID phenomenon. We see here that they are serving God in their God-ordained assigned areas and they're just going to work with it. 
And then here's the good news. This is lesson number three for all of us. Unknown people are known by God. See, we read in that list in Nehemiah 3, and we're like, I I don't know these people. God says, I do. We say, I don't care about these people. God says, I do. Well, I don't know what they did. God says, I do. And that's true for you. God knows you. God loves you. God sees every day of your life. God knows every longing of your heart. God sees every good work that springs forth out of your love for him. Your life is not wasted. It is invested. What you bring to your work may not seem like a big deal. But to God, you are a big deal. And you're part of his kingdom. And that's a big deal. I want to encourage you. And some of you may wonder, well, does anybody know? Does anybody care? Does, does anybody really ever pay attention? Yeah, God does. I want to encourage you with this. Jesus has another list and another home. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 3 talks about the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life? Those who love and serve the Lord. This is you standing before Jesus, hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus has a book. And if you belong to Jesus, your name is in it, along with all of the good works you have done for him. Revelation on several occasions says the same thing, that there is in eternity a book of life. Where is that book right now? The book of life is in the kingdom of God. And Jesus told us this, before he died for our sins and rose and returned to heaven, he says, I am going to, this is John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus right now, is building our home. Jesus the carpenter still has a project that he's working on. He's building our home. That's the language he uses. He says, in my father's house, that they're building a home for us so that one day our life will end and then your life will really begin, right? That you will be with Jesus. And you're going to enter the home that he has built for you. And there's a book similar to Nehemiah 3. It's got a list of names. And you're going to be like, huh, there I am. And then you're going to get rewarded eternally for all the good works you have done to the Lord during this life. And let me be clear, you're not saved by works. You're saved by Jesus' works what he's already done for you on the cross. But we are saved to do good work so that our life would be meaningful and valuable and purposeful. And so as we work here, we are building his kingdom. And eventually his kingdom come and his kingdom servants are rewarded, encouraged, and blessed forever. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.